Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Hemingway list. Well, <laughs> I'm still in Lake, uh, Lake Molwala and uh, heading back in the morning. So I'll be back to my normal setup, which will be nice. But, sorry, as I bump the microphone, probably extremely loudly. Oh, did I mess up yesterday? So what I'm going to do, I read the wrong chapter. Yesterday I read the wrong chapter, and I didn't even realize, but I'd, I'm reading it on my iPad thingy, um, tablet thingy, and um, I accidentally hit the little slider at the bottom of the page, which slid me from book uh, from chapter five to like book five, chapter five, or something like that. Like it slid me all the way nearly to the end of the book, and... Um, I didn't even notice because I just saw, oh yeah, chapter five, same characters, let's go. And I was reading it like, oh man, I must be tired. This isn't making any sense. I'm trying to follow along and uh, like, anyway, I just thought I was too tired to really wrap my head around it. I picked up the key bits, but didn't really know how it fit in. And anyway, today, pleasantly, oh sorry, unpleasantly surprised by to find out that I'd read the completely wrong chapter. The worst thing is, as well, is the random chapter that I happened to land on was, um, not only was it chapter five, which was confusing, but it was also a long chapter. So I spent like half an hour reading this chapter that wasn't even correct. And I still didn't notice. So what does that say about me as a reader? What I'm going to do is I'm going to delete the podcast, obviously, because I've read the wrong thing. And then I'm going to... Um, in today's podcast, I'm going to read the chapter I was meant to read, chapter five, and I'm going to do chapter six so that we're still up to date with our readings. Okay, so this is a double chapter podcast. But first, I'll just talk about chapter four really quickly because the discussion front was this. So much of their identity is wrapped up in the material like spoons and salt shakers. Why are they so focused on these things? Techrific says basically it's materialism. The longer answer would involve lengthy discussions about status, aesthetics, cultural versus financial capital, values and meaning. Humans beings, for better or worse, are social creatures and very much the product of their upbringing with all that entails in terms of what they value, how they compare themselves to their peers, what brings them a sense of accomplishment, success and meaning, etc. Um, sorry, I was just checking that I'm recording because I had this awful thought of like, I'm not doing another wrong podcast. Um, for a long time in many cultures, possessions have been the focal point of psychological makeup. Uh, yeah, that's basically it. But um, it's interesting to see the differences between, you know, they're all posh in their own way. Some of them are... Uh, aristocrats, some of them are sort of uh, captains of industry or something along that line, and then some of them own a shop. But all of these things are, you know, if you're making good money doing anything like that, then it's so weird that back then it was still, there was still this huge division between those classes, whereas today not so much. At least it's not as noticeable. Anyway. That was basically the discussion for chapter four. So now what I'm going to do, just to keep it a bit short, I'm going to move straight into reading um, chapter five and six. I'll just go straight through both of them. Luckily, they're both quite short chapters. So chapter five goes like this. Did you ever see him, her pastor, 
The plates were being changed again. An enormous brick red boiled ham appeared, strewn with crumbs and served with a sour brown onion sauce and so many vegetables that the company could have satisfied their appetites from that one vegetable dish. Before I continue, I'll just also say, I forgot to say this, a huge apology if there were any spoilers due to the fact that I read the wrong chapter. I'm sure that spoiled a little bit of it for a lot of people, and even the discussion prompts were based on that incorrect chapter that I read. So even the discussion prompts themselves might have been a little micro-spoilery, so I apologise for that. Uh, Lebrecht Kroger undertook the carving and skillfully cut the succulent slices with his elbows slightly elevated and his two long forefingers laid out along the back of the knife and fork. With the ham went the frowls. Consoles celebrated Russian jam, a pungent fruit conserve flavoured with spirits. No pastor Wanderlich regretted to say that he had never set eyes on Bonaparte. Old Buttonbrook and Jean-Jacques Hofstede had both seen him face to face, one in Paris just before the Russian campaign, reviewing the troops at the Tuileries, the other in Danzig. I must say, he wasn't very cheerful a person to look at, said the poet, raising his eye, his brows, as he disposed of a forkful of ham, potato and sprouts, but they say he was a lively, in a lively mood at Danzig. There was a story they used to tell about how he would gamble all day with the Germans and make them pay up too, and had spread the evening play, spend the evening playing with his generals. Once he swept a handful of gold off the table and said, "Le Alman augment beaucoup, ces petits Napoleons cesse par rap. We say plus que le grand." Rap answered. No translation. Sorry. There was general laughter. Hofstede had told the story very prettily, even mimicking the emperor's manner. Old Buttonbrook said, Well, joking aside, one can't help having respect for his personal greatness. What a nature. The consul shook his head gravely. No, no. We are of a younger generation. Do you not see why we should revere the man who murdered the Duke and Hein and butchered 800 prisoners in Egypt? All that is probably exaggerated and overdrawn, said Pastor Wunderlich. The Duke was never was very likely a feather-brained and seditious person. And as for the prisoners, their execution was probably the deliberate and necessary policy of a council of war, and he went on to speak of a book at which he had long been looking by one of the emperor's secretaries, which had appeared some years before and was well worth reading. All the same, persisted the consul, snuffing a flickering candle in the sconce in front of him. I cannot understand it. I cannot understand the admiration people have for this monster. As a Christian, as a religious man, I can find no room in my heart for such a feeling. He had, as he spoke, the slightest inclined head and the rapt look of a man in a vision. His father and Pastor Wunderlich could be seen in it to exchange the smallest of smiles. Well, anyhow, grinned the old man, the little Napoleons aren't so bad, hey? My son has more enthusiasm for Louis-Philippe, he said to the company in general. Enthusiasm, repeated Jean-Jacques Hofstede, rather sarcastically. That is a curious juxtaposition. Philip Egalite and enthusiasm. God knows I feel we have much to learn from the July monarchy, the consul said with serious zeal. The friendly and helpful attitude of French constitutionalism towards the new practical ideas and interests of our time is something we should be deeply thankful for. Practical ideas? Well, yes. The older Buttonbrook gave his jaws a moment's rest and played with the gold snuffbox. Practical ideals? Well, hmm, they don't appeal to me in the least. He dropped into dialect out of sheer vexation. 
We have trade schools and technical schools and commercial schools springing up on every corner. The high schools and the classical education suddenly turn out to be all foolishness and the whole world thinks of nothing but mines and factories and making money. That's all very fine, of course, but in the long run, pretty stupid, isn't it? I don't know why, but it irritates me like the juice. I don't mean Jean that the July monarchy is not admirable a regime. Senator Langholz, as well as the Gratians and Coppens, stood by the Count's console. They felt that high praise was due to the French government and to similar efforts that were being made in Germany. It was worthy of all respect, her Coppen called it respect. He had grown more and more crimson from eating and puffed audibly as he spoke. Pastor Wanderlich had not changed colour. He looked as pale, refined and alert as ever, while drinking down glass after glass of wine. The candles burned down slowly in their sockets now, and then they flickered in a draught and dispersed a faint smell of wax over the table. There they all sat on heavy high-backed chairs, consuming good heavy food from good heavy silver plate, drinking full-bodied wines and expressing their views freely on all the subjects. When they began to talk shop, they slipped unconsciously more and more into dialect and used the clumsy but comfortable idioms that seemed to embody to them the business efficiency and the easy well-being of their community. Sometimes they even used an overdrawn pronunciation by way of making fun of themselves and each other and relished their clipped phrases and exaggerated vowels with the same heartiness as they did their food. The ladies had not long followed the discussion. Madame Kroger gave them the cue by setting forth a tempting method of boiling carp in red wine. You cut it into nice pieces, my dear, and put it in the saucepan. Add some cloves and onions and a few rusks, a little sugar and a spoonful of butter and set it on fire. On the fire, sorry. But don't wash it on any account. All the blood must remain in. The elder Kroger was telling the most delightful stories in his son Justice who sat with Dr. Grabau down at the bottom of the table near the children, was chafing Mamselle Jungmann. She screwed up her brown eyes and stood her knife and fork upright on the table and moved them back and forth. Even the Overdeeks were very lively. Old Frau Overdeek had a new pet name for her husband. You good old Bellwether, she said, and laughed so hard that her cap bobbed up and down. But all the various conversations around the table flowed together in one stream when Jean Jacques Hofstede embarked upon his favourite theme and began to describe the Italian journey which he had taken 15 years before in a rich Hamburg relative. With a rich Hamburg relative. He told of Venice Roman Vesuvius, of the Villa Borghese, where Goethe Goth, had written part of his Faust. He waxed enthusiastic over the beautiful Renaissance fountains that wafted coolness upon the warm Italian air and the former gardens through the avenues of which it was so enchanting to stroll. Someone mentioned the big wilderness of a garden outside the castle gate that belonged to the Buddenbrooks. Upon my word, the old man said, I still feel angry with myself that I have never put it into some kind of order. I was out there the other day, and it is really a disgrace, a perfect primeval forest. It would be a pretty bit of property if the grass were cut and the trees trimmed into formal shapes. The console protested strenuously. Oh no, Papa, I love to go out there in the summer and walk in the undergrowth. It would quite spoil the place to trim and prune. It's free natural beauty. But just take it. The free natural beauty belongs to me. Haven't I the right to put it in order if I like? 
Ah, Father, when I go out there and lie in the long grass among the undergrowth, I have a feeling that I belong to nature and not she to me. Krishan, don't eat too much, the old man suddenly called out in dialect. Never mind about Tilda, it doesn't hurt her. She can put it away like a dozen harvest hands, that child. And truly, it was amazing, the prowess of this scraggy child with the long, old, maidish face. Asked if she wanted more soup, she answered in a meek, drawling voice, Yes, please. She had two large helpings, both of fish and ham, with piles of vegetables, and she bent short-sightedly over her plate, completely absorbed in the food, which she chewed ruminantly in large mouthfuls. Oh, uncle, she replied, with amiable simplicity, to the old man's gibe, which did not in the least disconcert her. She ate. Whether it tasted good or not, whether they teased her or not, she smiled and kept on heaping her plate with good things, with the instinctive, insensitive ferocity of a poor relation, patient, persevering, hungry and lean. That's chapter 5, kicking right on into chapter 6, which goes like this. And now came in two great cut glass dishes the plenty pudding, Pletton pudding. It was made of layers of macarons, raspberries, ladyfingers and custard. At the same time, at the other end of the table appeared a blazing plum pudding, which was the children's favourite sweet. Thomas, my son, come here a minute, said Johan Buttonbrook, taking his great bunch of keys from his trousers pocket. In the second cellar to the right, the second bin, behind the red Bordeaux, two bottles, you understand. Thomas, to whom such orders were familiar, ran off and soon came back with the two bottles covered with dust and cobwebs, and the little dessert glasses were filled with sweet golden yellow malmsey from these unsightly receptacles. Now the moment came when Pastor Wunderlich rose, glass in hand, to propose a toast, and the company fell silent to listen. He spoke in the pleasant conversational tone which he liked to use in the pulpit, his head a little one on one side. A subtle humorous smile on his pale face, gesturing easily with his free hand. Come, my honest friends, let us honour ourselves by drinking a glass of this excellent liquor to the health of our host and hostess in their beautiful new home. Come then to the health of the Buddenbrook family, present, present and absent. May they live long and prosper. Absent, thought the consul to himself, bowing as the company lifted their glasses. Is he referring to the Frankfurt Buddenbrooks, or perhaps the Duchamps in Hamburg? Or did old Wanderlich really mean something by that? He stood up and clinked glasses with his father, looking him affectionately in the eye. Broker Jutt Gratchens got up next, and his speech was rather long, winded. He ended up he ended by proposing in his high-pitched voice a health to the firm of Johann Buddenbrook that it might continue to grow and prosper and do honour to the town. Johann Buddenbrook thanked them all for their kindness, first as head of the family and then as senior partner of the firm, and sent Thomas for another bottle of Malmsey. Malmsey? It had been a mistake to suppose that too would be enough. Lebech Kroger spoke too. He took the liberty of remaining seated because it looked less formal and gestured with his head and hands most charmingly as he proposed a toast to the two ladies in the family, Madame Antoinette and the Frau Consul. As he finished, the pleasant pudding was nearly consumed and the Malmsey nearing its end and then to a universal long-drawn aha. Jean Jacques Hofstede rose up slowly 
Clearing his throat, the children clapped their hands with delight. Excuses, I really couldn't help it, he began. He put his finger to his long, sharp nose and drew a paper from his coat pocket. A profound silence reigned throughout the room. His paper was gaily party-coloured. On the outside of it was written in an oval border surrounded by red flowers and profusion of gilt flourishes. On the occasion of my friendly participation in a delightful housewarming party given by the Buddenbrook family, October 1835. He read this aloud first, then turning the paper over, he began in a voice that was already somewhat tremulous. Honoured friends, my modest Jay, haste to greet you in these walls. May kind heaven grant today blessings on their spacious halls. Thee, my friend, with silver hair, and thy faithful loving spouse, and your children young and fair, I salute you in your house. Industry and beauty chaste. See, we linked in marriage band, venues anadimony, and cunning Vulcan's busy hand. May no future storms dismay with unkind blasts the joyful hour. May each new returning day blessings on your pathway shower. Ceaselessly shall shall I rejoice over the fortune that is yours, as today I lift my voice, may I still while life endures. In your splendid walls live well, and cherish with affection true, him who in his humble cell penned today these lines for you. He bowed to a unanimous outburst of applause. Charming, Hefstead, cried old Buddenbrook, it was too charming for words, I drink your health. But when the Frau Consul touched glass with the poet, a delicate blush mantled her cheek, for she had seen the courtly bow he made in her direction when he came to the part about the Venus Anadomene. Ooh, a little bit of a flirt from the poet. Flirty, flirty poet. All right, well, that's that chapter. Those are all five and six. Thanks for listening. Again, sorry for the mess up, and I'll see you tomorrow.